Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Rwandri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Tracy, our breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. How? And in the studio, we have Rob. Jess. And Idwin, and it's 2020. 2020. Yay. It's our first show back. Sorry that we're a little bit late. <laughs> but we had some amazing content from yeah. Idwin. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, unfortunately, we've had um, a four part series up until now, but that will go. We'll be going back to regular programming. Mm-hmm. So, Wednesday Breakfast back. Uh, we're very excited for this year with a new, not a new team, but kind of, I guess. The same old team, but reshuffling, mm, redoing, mm. retrying things. Who knows? We might bring some new things of 2020. Who knows? I'm feeling experimental. I am I'm feeling too. like we've learned a lot this summer and yes. wrap it up a bit, you know? Yeah. Mm. I think like having that sort of time to sort of like sit back, reflect and be like, we could try these things or those mm. things. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Also, I um, wanted to throw out a huge thanks to you guys for covering the whole of December. You guys sounded oh. fantastic. Well, thank you for covering yeah. the amazing four-part series no. that you did. So. Hello. Hello. So we're all a team. Yeah. We're all, we're all Oh, so much appreciation. <laughs> but speaking of the summer, how was the summer for you guys? We were talking before. It was just... It's kind of stressful. It was very stressful and just yeah. obviously very saddening. Yeah. Just saying, I don't really know how to... Just with the, obviously the bushfires. Um, yeah, I was thinking about Australia seems to be this... If Australia's whole cultural thing mm. is like summer is the time we party, mm. Australia's just gone through a really, really harrowing summer. Mm. And it's just... I feel like the whole country's been put on a bit of a pause. I think so. Like, In, I think yeah. this will be a summer that so many people remember of, mm. you know, this mm. is a summer where, like, you know, Sydney was covered in smoke every other week or, mm-hmm. you know, we have fire followed by hail two weeks later mm-hmm. in, you know, Canberra. Um, and so I f- I'm I'm hoping this will be a summer that will lead to a shift on That's a lot yeah. of the climate dialogue in terms yeah. of, like, we're actually seeing what the future is going to be mm. if we don't actually make changes right now. Mm. Absolutely. So that's kind of my, like, although, like, obviously it's been absolutely tragic what's been happening over the summer, I really do hope it's a it's a warning sign of and people start to realise that this is actually, this is happening. Mm. Um, I yeah, that's what I really hope will happen. Yeah, I hope in these following months we all see a lot of healing and mm-hmm. support. I mean, we're already seeing, we saw a huge outpour of support and community so i hope we start to see some of the rebuilding of that mm-hmm. yeah um, absolutely so yeah, uh, yeah. okay so it's, it's been a bit of an interesting interesting, <laughs> yeah, interesting break yeah but um we're here back again and we can only bring the positive vibes from here on <laughs> absolutely absolutely um well jumping right in what do we have on the show today well yeah well yeah. You're, you're actually starting I, up I'm starting. with your first interview yeah well so at 7 15 we've got some recordings from the invasion day rally um, and some box pops as well. Then at 7.30, we've got Adelaide from YGAP. So she's speaking about entrepreneurial refugees um, in Australia. Then 7.45? 7.45, we have um, oh, coverage from the Sticky Institute mm-hmm. and this year's Zine mm-hmm. Fair. Mm-hmm. So if you know what a Zine is, it's... Um, Oh, zine, sorry, zine, I think it is, because it's magazine. So uh. the second half of magazine kind of thing, right? And they're um, oh, little printable stories and things and artist collectives. 
the guy I've got coming on will give a much better definition mm, than mm. that. It's a bit expansive. But, um, yeah, they're going to be having a fair coming up, so yeah, that's more cool. community news, I suppose. Yeah, great. And then at 8 o'clock, we have Chris Sheringa from Gungra Environment Centre, which otherwise known as Gecko. Um, he's joining us to talk about the petition to get the Victorian government to remodel their action statement for the greater gliders in Victoria who are now being who have been affected by the bushfires and logging. So we'll talk to him about that. Sick. And finishing up today, we will be having uh, Democracy in Colour come on, which is another kind of organisation that looks at leadership and also political change in uh, the representation of multicultural backgrounds in Mm. (laughs) democratic and platformed places. Um, And we're going to have Amelie to come and talk to us about the organisation, what it does and what it's fighting for this 2020. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. We've got a pack show to start off with. So good good intentions for 2020. Come back swinging, right? (laughs) This is the sort of level of organisation. Organization I want to bring to everything. Absolutely. And probably bring to about 40% of everything <laughs> no, we'll, I do. But to start us off, we've got a song called Earth Song, and it's by Ricky.
Okay, so this Sunday marked Invasion Day, uh, the start of invasion in Australia, and the bloody colonisation that then continued. This year's theme, uh, if you did get to manage to get down to the Invasion Day March in Melbourne or in any capital city of your choosing, there was um, quite a lot of people this year who came together to mark the significance of this day. And the leading theme to come out of it was pay the rent. Now, I'll leave it to the speakers to probably discuss this more, <laughs> this theme greater in detail. But if you, if you are interested in finding out more, you can head to Facebook or online and search up the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, which has then got this list of um, organisations that you can donate to, which feed back directly into First Nation communities, helping to support those um, that, yeah, survive in our communities. Mm. So, yeah, well, we're going to play a few speeches and a few excerpts, I believe, Rob, from yes. today. So yeah. we've got a recording from Millie Telford. So she spoke at the end. Day rally. Um, so let's have a listen. I want to call Millie Telford up to have a yarn. Millie Telford does some amazing organising around fracking in the NT, and Millie's the founder of Seed. So give her a round of applause. Thank you so much. Um, while my family and partner's family is coming up here, can we just have a massive round of applause for all the organisers who've pulled off this incredible march today? Now, I'm a bit short for this mic, but I'll give it my best chance. Um, I'd like to first start by acknowledging um, traditional custodians of the land that we're on today, Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, um, and want to start today, before I go any further, of acknowledging all the people, communities, all around this country and around the world who are currently and have been experiencing the impacts of climate change and the ongoing impacts of colonisation. And so I want to start with a minute silence for all the mob, all the First Nations people and people around the world who have lost culture, who've lost lives, who've lost our homes, who've lost our country. A minute silence. Thank you. As pretty much every speaker has done so today, everyone has talked about country. Countries where they come from, country that they're looking after, country that we're losing. Because country is so important to us. It's, it makes us who we are. And if our country is sick, then so are we. And right now, country is really, really sick. Country is calling out for us. All of the impacts that we're seeing, all the fires, the in extreme weather events, rising sea levels, drought, extreme heat. It's our way of our mother trying to send us a message, trying to call out to not just us as Blackfellas and First Nations people, but to everyone to listen, because it's Indigenous people that need to be at the forefront of this movement that we're building, right? As Uncle Rob said, our land is our law. And it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have been looking after country here for thousands and thousands of years. And yet within a matter of 250 years of colonisation, look where we are right now. Our country is being dug up and destroyed. It's not fair. It's people who've done the least to cause climate change who are facing the most severe consequences here in Australia and right around the world. And we're all around the world, Indigenous people are rising up we're rising up and we're leading the way. We're saying enough is enough, right? Yeah. 
weed mob. We talk about climate justice because cli action on climate change alone is not going to be the change that we need. We, we can't continue business as usual. We need to look at the systems that have got us here in the first place. Colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. It's the way that some people's lives are valued more than others. It's the way that our women are treated is a reflection on the way that we treat our Mother Earth. It's the way where frackers can be digging up and mining country in the Northern Territory, but that wouldn't happen in the Northern beaches of Sydney. It's not fair. Yeah. No amount of money can buy back what we've lost. No amount of money can can be compared to what our country means to us. And so I ask you, as everyone is coming together today, this fight, all of these fights that we're facing is connected and our struggles and our movement need to be connected. And so I've got a quote. I don't know if people have heard the quote from Sitting Bull, a Lakota man um, from the US where he says, um, and if you can put your hands up in the air, as individual fingers, we can be easily broken but together we make a mighty fist and that's how, and so you put your fist together, yeah? <laughs> um, and that's how we need to confront this. We need to do this together, led by black people, led by First Nations people. And so we have a... <laughs> right now, it's not fair, it's not okay that companies like Origin Energy are, fr are starting to frack in the Northern Territory. The companies like Adani have been given land, land that was extinguished, native, native title that was extinguished from the Wangan and Jagalingu people to build a new coal mine. We, we cannot afford new fossil fuels. We cannot afford to continue business as usual. We need to come together. We need to build this movement and First Nations people need to be leading it. And so we have a chant. We have a chant that we made up. You want to do it with me? Remember? <laughs> it's um, inspired by this sign, the hands off our women. So it goes, hands off our women, hands off our mother, protect country. Hands off our women, hands off our mother, protect country. Hands off our women, hands off our mother, protect country. Hands off our women, hands off our mother, protect country. Thank you. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. That was Millie Telford with a very, very empowered speech about from the Invasion Day rally. And following from that, we also have some Vox Pops, so people who are at the march sharing their voices and their thoughts about Invasion Day. Uh, I'm here just uh, celebrating survival and um, a bit of protest you know, against invasion as well. And, you know, uh, I guess just being around, you know, other blackfellas from around Australia as well. Part of the march um, and to be here with our mob, you know, gathering in spare unity, people coming together. Uh, you know, to acknowledge the dark history and injustice of our people. Uh, come together in unity. And um, when you see a mob together, it gives us strength. You know, we walk as proud Aboriginal people and we're still here today.
you know, we we survived and been here for a long time. Going to be for a lot longer. I'm I'm here to I'm I'm an activist for stop black deaths in custody. It's what my I'm very passionate about. Um, I, I, I get really affected when I hear about a death in custody. Sometimes you know, they're not my family, but it feels like my family. And you know I'm here to support all the um, you know atrocities, the massacres. Um, and, and, and when I was a little kid, I, I've never dreamed of this kind of day, seeing this, <clears throat> this, this, all these people wanting to be a part of, um, you know, wanting to know about us, wanting helping us, supporting us, and, and, and a lot of it's through um, non-Indigenous people, and that's the important part about it, that that's the, the um, white Australia loves us, that, you know, learns to embrace us, to look after us. To, to lift us up instead of us, instead of putting us bloody down all the time. Say so they raped my grandmothers, they murdered my grandfathers, they stole my language, my culture, and my land. And, and now every year they celebrate that. Um, and and I, I, I just believe that that's insane. Police station where even then she was pleading with them for her release and that they would not do. 
they did call us, but none of us were close enough and they said no matter what, your mother's going to have to be in custody for four hours. So during that time that mum was in custody, within the first hour, mum had had her catastrophic hit to the head, which caused a traumatic brain bleed, which is actually the cause of her death. So mum had multiple falls in that cell. They were meant to monitor her every 20 minutes, as that's what's in their police procedures. That they failed to do. They shamed. From the moment that my mum hit her head on that cell, she laid on the bed and then she rolled on the floor to on the cold concrete floor to die, which they left her for over four hours. By the time that mum had left there, it was the last time that she was conscious and the only last time that we would ever be able to communicate with our mother. So, um, it's been extremely difficult. Um, we finished up the coronial in November. And um, at one of the first directions here in the coroner had overshadowed and made a decision to abolish public drunkenness, which is a law that targets our people and has been recommended over 11 times at the Royal Commission to be criminalised. So that law was criminalised back, uh, yet yeah, decriminalised, then um, Mum could have still been here today. So um, it was pretty hard to just you know, have our people see within that courtroom. Uh, for the first time in the nation, we had systemic racism included within a criminal inquest into an Aboriginal death in custody. So, yeah, it was a win for our family, um, but also for all the mobs because it sets a precedent for other families that are going through what we're going through, um, and hopefully that helps them be able to bring the truth out of what happens to their loved ones. So, it was a 13, 14 day inquest. We had to watch that footage on repeat every single day while we sat there and questioned those racist police. The same police that let mum die on that floor. The same police that when they were asked if you would change anything, knowing that Tanya Day would die, would you change it? And every single one of them said no. <laughs> Knowing that my mother would die and that her grandbabies would be crying for her, they said that they would not change anything. Shame. So we're asking for the coroner to lay criminal to report them and lay criminal charges for criminal neglect. Because if it wasn't to them place for my mother in her cell, she would be alive. Murderer. Another thing that stood out for us was police investigating police. How can police be investigating police? This country was invaded. It has been built on murder and genocide. And then you're going to let the police investigate their own kind when they're out here killing our people. And you can see throughout every single statement, every single witness that stood on that stand, that there was absolutely no fault in their mind that what they'd done was wrong. And you could see from every statement that the investigation was completely flawed, it was biased. You could see that the police commissioner did not take 
any seriousness into the matter. I didn't respect the coroner's court in any form, and the best they could do was put up witnesses that couldn't answer basic questions about systemic racism and biases in their police force. So, shame. They have police investigating police that are only getting a handful of statements. They've got police investigating police that aren't going back for a second report when they find a lie within the statement. They're not even interviewing civilians that were in contact with mum. What does that say when you have a police officer running that investigation?
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and we're just listening to Thelma Plum listening to her song Back in... Oh, sorry, Better in Black. And on the line, we now have Adelaide Mutinda, who is the YGAP First Gens Program Manager. And she has more than seven years' professional experience initiating, leading, managing, and delivering projects in initiatives in Asia, Africa, Australia, and North America. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I wanted to ask, so what is YGAP and what is the First Gens program? Great. So um, YGAP is an international um, nonprofit that has this innovative approach to alleviating poverty. So what we do is we back local leaders um, who have solutions to local problems. Um, And this is based on the premise that this is one of the most effective and sustainable ways to tackle poverty and disadvantage because these local leaders understand the unique challenges of their communities and so they're best placed to address these problems. Um, So what we do is we run accelerator programs in Africa, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, and in Australia. And as YGAP, um, so far we have run over 40 accelerator programs globally and supported more than 500 ventures um, and impacted close to a million lives. So that's pretty cool. Um, the first dance program is our program in Australia. So it's an accelerator program for migrants and refugee-led social impact ventures in Australia. Um, why do we do this? It's because, you know, in Australia still migrants and refugees continue to face more challenges than starting a business, participating in the community, and searching for employment. And so WAGAP developed the first dance program to help support um, migrant and refugee-led ventures so that they can you know, grow and thrive in the ecosystem. And so through your time coordinating this program, what have you seen as some of the, the key barriers that refugee business owners face? Yeah, um, so some of the barriers that we um, know that refugee entrepreneurs face um, is obviously lack of social capital. Um, most of them might not always have that social network. Um, then there's lack of access to proper information. Like there is a lot of information out there, but it's not always accessible or organized. So sometimes people are confused about what kind of um, support they can access. Um, then there's um, obviously a lack of funding, especially for early stage funders, just because there's an added element of risk. Um, and just general discrimination. And um, what's interesting is that these challenges are not just things that we've seen from our work, but it's also stuff that um, refugee entrepreneurs have actually told us about. And so, a lot of the like a lot of the issues that are, these business owners are facing, there's a, there's a lot of social issues mm-hmm. that they're trying to sort of tackle. What are there yeah. are there any kind of consistent themes that you're noticing, and what people are interested in sort of developing businesses in? Yeah, actually, quite interestingly, um, I feel like the issues that they love to address are as diverse as the entrepreneurs themselves. Um, so what we've seen is that they are solving social issues across the board. So um, we have people working across health, legal, education. So there is not one single sector that they're interested in, but they're just interested in solving issues um, across the board. So it's, it's quite interesting to note that. Mm. And so, obviously, in a program like this, there's a lot of, I guess, support from all the other people who are involved in the program. And so how mm-hmm. have you seen participants sort of change during their time with YGAP and the First Gens program? Yeah, so we've seen them, um, you know, go through a lot of changes. And 
you know, we, we like to be careful with what we attribute to our program. But um, I think one thing we do know is that um, we've seen a lot of them just get more confident, and that could be confidence about with just speaking about their per, uh, whatever projects they're working on to larger audiences. Some people might have never pitched in front of a big audience before they come into our program. Um, then they get the opportunity to do so. It might just be confidence with like going after bigger funding. So we've seen uh, ventures come through our program, then go into investment funding. So that's been pretty exciting. Um, you know, putting themselves out there. And some of them, you know, even say, even though they don't get funding from our program, they leave with lots of confidence, lots of knowledge that they didn't have. So there's that change. Um, an interesting story is one of entrepreneurs actually, um, you know, seven years ago, they came to Australia as a refugee and couldn't speak any English. Um, and now seven years later, seeing them go through a program, um, be able to pitch in front of an audience, and then just after, soon after that, do a TED Talk is pretty exciting. So those are some of the changes, uh, changes that we're seeing in our participants. Mm. And what have you also seen about like the community amongst all the different participants in terms of how they sort of come together or how they support each other? Um, yeah, so the community is great. Um, so since we, we started, we have supported 36 entrepreneurs and, um, you know, there is knockoff effects as well from that. So, um, yeah, the community is great. They love each other. They love collaborating. Some of them actually collaborate on business, um, on their businesses. Um, they continue to support each other even after the program. Some come back as mentors for future cohorts. Yeah, and even last night we just had a catch-up with some of them. So, yeah, we continue to build a community because time after time the one thing that comes out as a huge benefit for the program is this community that we've developed and people finally feel like they have a family, they're building this social capital that they really lack and need. So um, it's a really great uh, benefit of our program. And so what are the future sort of aspirations or in, where, do you, where do you hope the program develops into the future? Yeah, so um, I think like many of our program's questions is a very iterative, iterative process. So um, we learn a lot as we go. We learn from, you know, the entrepreneurs. We, we learn about their needs. We listen to them and then we incorporate those changes into the program. Um, so one thing that I'd be, I'm really excited about is currently we are collaborating with another organization called Catalyzer, um, and Catalyzer is a pre-accelerator program, so we are providing more support for migrants and refugees in the idea and validate stage, which is something that we noticed was missing. Um, so that's one exciting thing. Um, we also want to support, um, you know, more regional uh, migrants and refugee entrepreneurs, just because a lot of our programs are focused on Victoria and Sydney, um, or Mel- no, Sydney and Melbourne, so it would be good to go more regional Victoria, more regional New South Wales, go national, and hopefully go global. Yeah, great. And if someone was looking to get involved in the First Gens program, how might they do so? Yeah, great. So all the information is on our website, um, www.ygap.org. Um, and we are going to be recruiting for our accelerator program this year from March. Um, so all that information is going to be available on our website and also on our socials. You know, if you wanted to stay in the loop, um, yeah, just follow us on our social media and you can also sign up for a newsletter and yeah, all that information will be shared with time. But yeah, just definitely staying in the loop and, um, having access to all that information. Great. Well, thanks very much, Adelaide, for speaking to us about the, the First Gens program. Thank you. Um, Have a great day. You too.
That was Adelaide, who is the YGAP First Gen's Program Manager. And up next, we have another song called My Child by North Tanami Band. Time to get outdoors and lock in your next fitness challenge. Time to tackle Australia's original team challenge, Oxfam Trail Walker, happening in March. You and three mates will journey through 100 kilometres of bush trail within 48 hours. Teams start together, stick together and finish together. Oxfam Trail Walker is a life-changing experience and every step you take helps raise vital funds to support people living in poverty. Register your team now at trailwalker.oxfam.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 
The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. to summer programming on 3CR. To find out more about our summer specials, go to 3cr.org.au. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Monday, 10th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 94198377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. And the time is 7.44. Those are some community announcements. And just before then, we actually had the song My Child by the North Tanami Band. However, now we've got an interview coming up. So this is going to be around the Festival of the Photocopier, which is coming up uh, in Melbourne. Melbourne's very own zine fair. So... If you're thinking, what does this mean? Picture rooms full of creators with tables displaying their crazy imaginative creations. I was there last year and it was just chock-a-block full of artists and all walks of life. So we have Luke, one of the organisers behind the event, uh, on today to tell us a little bit more. Good morning, Luke. Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning. Starting off, can you just explain for us what a zine is? What oh, does it yes. encompass? It's a good question. My definition is an independent publication, mm-hmm. often photocopied often made by an individual or a small group of individuals, Mm -hmm. usually doesn't have any advertising and always made for love and not for profit. (laughs) Um, Usually it sells very low cost Mm -hmm. or is free and can break one or all of those rules and still be a zine. <laughs> I love it. It's such a flexible, such an expansive um, thing. And just touching on that, uh, obviously, Made with Photocopier, obviously the name Festival of the Photocopier. Yes. Celebrating the maker. We do love the photocopier. We, we do love it. It's true. I'm touching on the other kind of points you just raised there, independent, non-for-profit. Uh, zines are... It seem inherently like anti-capitalist in some ways. Well, what would you say to that? Yeah, they are. Some really explicitly are. Mm-hmm. Some just happen to be because money exchanging hands is unlikely with something, <laughs> <laughs> which is beautiful. You know, that, and that's one of the things I really love about them. And it's interesting when they do move more into that kind of money world. Mm. So, it, you know, Sticky's been there since 2001, and we've really noticed a big kind of shift, you know, in them 19 years towards, you know, kind of glossier, offset printed, mm. um, you know, like photography zines, for example, if you're going to make a photography zine, you want your photos to look good, so you might need to colour photocopy them. Yeah, yeah. High, well, and colour photocopying costs 15 times 
the amount of black and white. Mm-hmm. So then if you're going to print it for 15 times the cost, it's going to be much more expensive to be on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So then you get, you know, kind of real, there's, there's a lot of passion in the zine world. They tend to be very passionate people. So we had a lot of punks working at Sticky in about 2012, and they were really strong on nothing over $10. Love it. That's not that's not a zine. That's not punk. <laughs> and then, but the shop's interesting because it changes over time as to who's going to be working there. So I've been there since we opened, but generally there's 15 people who volunteer there. And if we have more people who are into comics, they tend to bring more comics there. And sorry, quickly touching on Sticky, Sticky, the Sticky Institute, the yep. kind of organisation that, you, as you said, you're part of that's creates created this event. Can you yep, just give so, us oh yeah, so we started on that. started this in 2008. So mm-hmm. outside outside our shop in Campbell Arcade on mm-hmm. the Flinders Street Station, we ran it in 2008. We had 50 stalls. Next year we had 65. Next year we had 80. The next year we had 95. We got in trouble from the fire brigade because it had outgrown the <laughs> corridor. So we moved it to the Melbourne Town Hall, biggest room with the Melbourne Town Hall. Mm-hmm. And we went from 95 to 110. Yep. And I thought we were pretty much at capacity then. And then the next year we had 165. And then we couldn't fit all the stalls in the biggest room of the Melbourne Town Hall. So we moved it last year to two days at Trades Hall. And this year it's on the 8th and 9th of February at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. And we are looking at between 450 and 500 no. stalls per day. Oh, goodness. So there's people travelling from all around Australia. We have Cindy Crabb from Doris, seeing Doris Distro coming from America to mm-hmm. give some talks. And, yeah, we're looking at 450 to 500 stalls a day. And one of the things that sparks me the most about our zines is the accessibility of artists. I mm. mean, you've got, you're starting off people, you've got people who have been in the game for a long time. But as you said, it is the passion of creators. Could you kind of talk to, I suppose, the makers behind these? Yeah, it, 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 at Sticky Institute, it's a really beautiful thing when you look on the shelf because we will put someone like Cindy Crabb who's coming out who's been making zines since the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Brilliant zines, complete high quality. The content is amazing. We'll put that on the shelf, and then right next to that, we'll have a zine by an eight-year-old who's drawn a comic about dragons. And they just go (laughs) next to each other, and it's up to you as the audience if you like one or if you like the other. So really, there's just hundreds of zines on the shelf, and you've kind of just got to find what you're interested in. Mm. So when we get a group through, it's really good, because I can say to them, have a look, have a look at what you can see, find something you like, find something you don't like, find something you can do better than, and if you reckon you can do better than it, then you've just got to do better than it. Yeah. Yeah, so then that's it. You can bring it in, put it straight on the shelf. And you mentioned that different people um, are kind of attracted to Sticky or work at Sticky at different times. Um, is there a specific audience that kind of get on board with zines, or do you find it's uh, it's open to everyone? As you said, it's open to your interpretation? It's pretty interesting because there is so many kind of sub-scenes mm. within the scene. So if you just look at comics... You know, there's yep. huge different scenes of people who are making, you know, kind of really way out there, kind of acid-infused, kind of crazy comics. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who are, you know, really just telling their own story through it and whatever. But they, we've managed to somehow create a space where they can get along and be on the shelf together and we can support both of those groups. So it's, it's, it's you know, we're really proud of what we've managed to do with it. Mm. And touching on 400 400 makers. Uh, are there any big names or any artists we should be aware of that you want to... I mean, the main the main one we're really excited about is Cindy Crabb, who's yeah. coming out from America. So mm-hmm. they have run... They've made the Zine Doris since the mid-90s, mm-hmm. and they're going to be giving two talks. So there's one talk at Sticky Institute 
on Friday, February the 7th, 6 till 7, and then they're repeating that same talk at the wheelchair-friendly venue of Meat Market on Saturday, February 8th at the Zine Fair from 3 till 4, and it's just free for both of those talks. And I just wanted to check also, you just mentioned it, but just the venue is the Meat Market, which is Blackwood Street in North Melbourne. Yep, that's right. Um, just checking accessibility for people wanting to attend the event. Is there water points, good coffee? Um, so <laughs> what it's, are we it's wheelchair-friendly. Mm-hmm. There's gender-neutral toilets. Um, we're really excited because it's one huge room. Yeah. So when it was at the Melbourne Town Hall, it was just one huge room and you could just overlook everyone. At the Trades Hall last year, it was many different rooms. I like mixing it up yeah. each year, but we're back to one huge room here so you can kind of look over and just see see who's here. Because there is, I mean, there's people travelling from yeah, Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra, Perth, Adelaide. I went through the names just before coming here. There's Philip Dearest, there's Squish Faces, Cindy Crab, there's Tree Paper Comics, Gracia Louise, Natalie Blom, Concrete Queers, Elvis Sorokin. I mean, it's, the, the, the lineup is just incredible. And it's, it's, you know, it's free for artists to have a stall. It's free to get in and all the money goes to the makers. Mm. So we've just kind of been really lucky that the city of Melbourne has supported it and we've managed to put it on. And checking for the talks happening at Stick Institute, are you guys still located under Campbell Market at the moment? Yep, or? so we're in Campbell Arcade under Campbell Flinders Arcade. Street. Station, so we're there. The current lease is through till July. It's mm-hmm. kind of affected by the Metro Tunnel project. That's right, yep, yep. So they want to demolish our section of the arcade. It's all heritage listed, and mm. so they have to apply to Heritage Victoria for a demolition permit. When they apply for that, they can, there's two weeks of public consultation, so we'll let everyone know that if they have feelings, <laughs> absolutely, they should share, their feelings. share your feelings. And <laughs> zine makers do have feelings. They so do. It's, they, they ran a public consultation two years ago, and it was people were sending their feelings to us as well as to the Metro Tunnel, and it was it was interesting to read their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose my uh, like a final thought, but it's, it's keeps coming back is this point of accessibility. I mean in Melbourne, it's very hard, or not Melbourne, just generally, it's very hard to access art. And I think zines are a really beautiful hub of young artists, uh, not just young artists, but like artists from every, yeah, every walk of life because it is such an accessible medium. So I suppose it's a wonderful opportunity to get down and, one, experience art, appreciate art, but also spend money and, uh, you know, pay back to art if if that is what you want. Yeah, I think so. I In mean, a really it, affordable, but, yeah, simple transactional way where you say, like, you're paying for the Photocopy costs. Yep, I mean, there'll be, there'll be lots of free zines there. There'll be lots of one dollar, two dollar, yeah. three dollar zines, and it is—it's a really good medium to make those first mistakes in. I mean, mm. that's where I made my first mistakes. You know, my first zines: terrible content, bad photocopying, cut off um, <laughs> sides. We're going to cut off half the words on the right-hand side. Didn't know how to do double-sided. Did some kind of weird thing where we were gluing things onto the cover, which was—you know—it was, you know, was going to take. It was going to take days to put the things together. So then on the second issue, you think, okay, I'm not going to put my girlfriend's terrible poetry in there. (laughs) I'm going to find some writing I'm really, you know, really keen on. I'm going to learn how to use the photocopier. I'm going to do it all correctly. I'm going to just make the right number of copies to bring to the zine fair, and I'm going to have a good time. I love it. And they all set up tables. I mean, again, as I said, I was there last year, and it was really like pokey kind of corridors walking down, and every time you turned a corner, it was just something new. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of the joy yeah. of it, I suppose. And, and the other the thing with that is, it's it. people release things, you know, on that day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even if you're really, you know, I follow the scene really closely. Every time you go to a new table, it's like, oh my god, I haven't seen that, I haven't seen that, I haven't seen that. It's like, yes. So yes. it's just as exciting for you. Oh, totally, totally. Complete fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm there in my, I, I have this pink vest and hard hat I wear as security, mm-hmm. but I have my bag with me, and I'm just kind of buying stuff. And um, <laughs> will there be kind of um, <laughs> buying stuff secretly on the yeah, side? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> 
in my bag. I shouldn't, but more. <laughs> um, and will there be kind of like, not just security, but like people around in high vis? Yeah, so there's usually about 15 people who work at Sticky Institute any week. So we all have our high vis on. Mm-hmm. You can ask us questions. We'll have some change. We're going to show people to their tables, let everyone know how it's going to run. And it's, it's an interesting event because really we set up the tables. The artists come, they put the stuff on the tables. And you then the audience come go in. from there. <laughs> yeah, last year I definitely I definitely would suggest to anyone planning to go like plan to go with someone, you know, pace yourselves because there's so much to see, but it's yep. just such a such a joy. And it is two days, so you mm. can come back. That might be also the trick. Is there different artists on different days? So there is. Mm-hmm. Some people are doing both days. It, we kind of when we did the call out, we asked artists if they wanted one day or two days. Mm-hmm. If they wanted two days, we tried to yeah, tried to fit everyone in with what they wanted. Um, and it's an epic undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> Organisation madness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, the dates are the 8th and 9th this this week. No, sorry, 8th to 9th of February. 8th to 9th of February, so not this weekend. Not this week, next weekend. weekend. Meat market. <laughs> and we had a few questions about mm-hmm. the meat market. People still get confused between the meat market arts venue and the fresh meat market at ah, the so meat market. <laughs> so the meat market is an arts venue in North yep, Melbourne, which yep. used to be a meat market and has not been a meat market for 40 years. But it's a big, beautiful It is an enormous space. old building, beautiful, huge space. And that's been working with the City of Melbourne to get. Yep, it is. So we got an arts grant through the City of Melbourne and mm. they were the people who kind of coordinate that building. That's something to keep in mind for uh, future projects. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah totally, totally. Yeah, but right. come, and, come and chat with me if you want to. Um. Fantastic. All right, so the meat market <laughs> in North Melbourne, not really a meat market, as the name suggests. <laughs> but yes. Well, thank you so much, Luke, for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to chuck us to a song. This is Human Behaviour by The Radical Sun.
Yalakut Willem Nagi, Australia's First Nations Festival, returns Saturday, February 1st with soulful live music and free family entertainment. Get your funk on to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, plus Coloured Stone, Kian, the Struggling Kings, Kihu, and loads more music from the finest First Nations artists in Australia. Eat and browse your way through market stalls or get hands on at the many workshops and activities on offer. Yalakut Willem Nagi proudly celebrates Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures across one day where everyone is welcome. Head to ywnf.com.au for details. City of Port Phillip and Yalakut Willem Nagi, 3CR supporters. FreeCR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. FreeCR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at FreeCR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. It's currently 8am and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now we'll be talking to Chris Sharinga from Gungara Environmental Centre, which is also called Gecko. Gecko is an organisation and collective that is working towards the protection of the remaining old growth forests in East Gippsland, Victoria. Um, Chris will be joining us to talk about their organisation, uh, their organisation's fight to protect the Victorian Greater Gliders after the threat of the recent bushfires and continual logging in gliders' natural habitats. Gecko is now petitioning the state government to remodel their action statement for the sake of the gliders in Victoria. 
The people that live and work at Gecko are dedicated to the protection of the high conservation value, which is otherwise known as the HCV, forest in um, East Gippsland, achieved by networking, um, surveying, monitoring um, a lot of endangered species and environmental groups, and um, looking out for logging operations and forest management. They also liaison with the workers and police, and they bring public awareness and campaigns through campaigning and fundraising. Chris, good morning. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, according to um, a leaked government report, 25, this is a statement that Gecko brought out, 25% of the remaining population of Greater Gliders is estimated to have perished in the bushfires in East Gippsland. It is evident that the population has been affected. Um, how does Gecko wish to see the Greater Gliders rebuild from this tragedy? Yeah, it's um, it's a devastating tragedy what's happened in East Gippsland and that 25% estimate that could be conservative so we don't know what intensity the bushfires have burnt out in the area so yeah it could be more than that which is really really scary Mm -hmm. it's a lot of their habitat that's been affected Mm -hmm. uh, and the gliders themselves yeah so what, what we're saying now is that all remaining areas of greater glider habitat should be protected across Victoria to ensure that the species survives. I mean, yeah, before the bushfires, it was already threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think that that listing should be evaluated and changed or uplisted because, yeah, it's been so, so badly affected. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Like, you know, even I, I struggle to find the words for it anymore. Like, the fires have obviously affected so many parts of our community and just to see this sort of yeah. thing. Um, what brought to my, well, it was actually brought to my attention this morning and for the last, you know, week or so. Um, in the media, um, there's been a big sort of push on, um, this sort of concept of the salvage forestry and cleaning up and, um, as you actually tweeted, um, that the government hasn't ruled out the salvage logging in the burnt forests of East Gippsland. Um, what do you, what is, what do you sort of, what's your opinion on salvage logging? Can you give us sort of a rundown on how you see that? And obviously it's portrayed in the mainstream media as being justifiable and, you know, like forestry unions protecting, you know, after the fires. But what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think that if, if areas, um, if burnt areas in East Gippsland, uh, end up being salvaged logger, it's going to heavily affect the recovery of the greater glider. I mean, the areas have already gone through so much disturbance from, from the fire and to then go in and log those areas. Like, if there were greater gliders that had, that managed to survive the bushfires, they will die mm. if those areas are then, are then logged. And there's some really great, um, uh, great resources out there by Professor David Lindenmeyer talking about salvage logging and its ecological impacts, mm-hmm. which are so damaging. Because even though even though the fires have been really ferocious, some of those for, those forests are still alive mm-hmm. and will still recover if if left to do so. But salvage logging will heavily impact the recovery process and yeah. potential greater gliders that survived. Yeah, definitely, yeah. and it's just, it's really heartbreaking to see, like, for those people that do are and, and are quite informed about salvage logging um, in the mainstream media because it sort of plays on people's heartstrings because, you know, the fires are affecting everybody and it's, it is, it is, people want them to stop and, you know, logging may seem like the way out, but um, that people aren't being properly informed and then it's just, it's heartbreaking to see mm-hmm. that the 
you know, habitats of greater gliders and the greater gliders being so affected by it. Um, so yeah. on top of the salvage logging, um, there's also a problem that they are being actually logged in the Central Highlands Forest, east of Melbourne, um, with actual planned loggings going ahead in the coming months. Um, was this so? This is separate to this is prior to the bushfires, is it? Or that this logging was? Can you talk a little bit about that logging? Yeah, yeah. The logging in the Central Highlands. I mean, yeah, the, the Central Highlands has been heavily logged for for decades, and so is and and so is East Gippsland. I mean, the Greater Glider was. Uh, actually quite common in, in Victoria mm. uh, prior to the logging of these habitats. So we know that, that logging has, has an incredible effect on, on, the, on the glider population and that they're in rapid decline. Mm. And the other major threat, is, of course, is bushfires. They're the two main threats to the greater glider logging and bushfires, and they've been greatly affected mm. by both uh, across Victoria. Uh, and, and while the fires were burning in, in, in East Gippsland, greater glider habitat was being logged in, mm. in the Central Highlands and is still being logged. Yeah, so that's yeah, just so a continual process. Yeah, ex- exactly. Mm. And it's, it, I think the most irresponsible thing is that we don't know the extent of the damage while we have, yeah, 25%, but it could be more. Mm-hmm. And even that is, is so um, devastating for the glider and yet they're still logging their habitat in other areas of Victoria. It just seems, yeah, absolutely absurd. Yeah, it is mind-blowing. Like you said before, I have never once seen a greater glider in Victoria. (laughs) And I know they're not, they're not like the easiest animal to come across, but, um, it's, no, never. And it's just harrowing to see the effects. And yeah, like you said, that 25% could, well, probably be higher. And, um, Yeah. yeah. So, um, the, you did mention the, so the Cottonwood Range and the Erendura Plateau, are those, um, those are the main areas that you're concerned for, the logging, or is that, can you give a little bit of a background on that? Like, are those the main areas in the Highlands? Um, the, the Cottonwood Range and Erendura Plateau are um, some of the only areas that weren't burnt okay. in East Gippsland, mm-hmm. uh, and they have the, the highest densities of greater gliders yeah. in, in, in East Gippsland, so... Okay. Yeah, we're really concerned that uh, those areas will still be scheduled to log there. I mean, they're not protected mm-hmm. at the moment, uh, and those areas are going to be key populations and key areas for the gliders to actually recover. So, yeah, we definitely want to see, see those areas protected as part of you know this emergency bushfire response mm-hmm. uh, from the government to protect the glider. Definitely. Yeah. And so is this, so that's a part of um, what, so when you're, you put out to the public to send an email to the minister, to ministers, both D'Ambrosio oh. and Symes calling for the immediate protection of the gliders, is that what you want to see changed in the um, uh, action statement that Victoria has currently got going? Or how, what key areas do you want to see changed in that action statement? I, th- I think that, um, I, I think that at this point, because the glider has been affected, been affected so badly, and also that the future threat of bushfire, especially in the Central Highlands, um, more areas could very well be burnt in East Gippsland in the coming months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important that all all areas of greater glider habitat and wherever they're found, it should now be protected. But this is an emergency and like a crisis yeah. for the species. And I think the only way uh, to stop it from going extinct is by protecting all areas where it's found. 
Definitely. Yeah. Um, so just another question on that. When you said of going extinct, um, in Victoria, is that the uh, is Victor, can we talk about the actual spread out of the Greater Glider, like elsewhere out of Victoria or in Victoria, or is this just the most densely populated areas that um, we're quite worried about? Um, yeah, it's uh, well. I mean, yeah, it's listed. It's listed in Victoria. It is found in New South Wales, mm-hmm. and and of course, and of course, I think that key areas of quite a habitat has also been been burned in New South Wales. Yes. So it's fed. It's it's federally listed and state listed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and while Victoria has an action has the action statement, while it's a proposed action statement, and it actually weakens the. <laughs> The proposed action statement weakens protections for greater gliders that were existing, mm-hmm. the, uh, replacing the existing protections in East Gippsland. Um, federally, there's no recovery plan for the for the greater glider, and the the government actually had a deadline to meet to meet that that commitment to release a recovery plan for the species, and they uh, yeah, and they haven't. Mm-hmm. So I think yes, it's on a state based level. More needs to be done. The action statement needs to be rewritten, considering the terrible impact of the bushfires. And then also, there needs to be federal action mm-hmm. to make sure that the species isn't going extinct. Definitely, yeah. I just think it's quite irresponsible that they could not meet those deadlines, and that they, they whereas they, they should be brought responsible for that. Um, Absolutely. The, the steps, so the steps that you guys are taking um, for this, you're calling out for everybody to sign the petition, or how are you? What do you guys want want to see from us? Um, yeah, we would love people to, um, we've got a, we've got an email action happening, which we've put out with, uh, another environmental group called Wildlife of the Central Highlands or mm-hmm. Watch. They, they're a citizen science group. They do a lot of work in the forest closest to, to Melbourne, uh, yeah, in the Central Highlands. And yeah, so we put out an email action on our website. Mm-hmm. You can sign through there. It's gecko.org.au, G-E-C-O. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that email is targeted at the Environment Minister, the State Environment Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, and the Agricultural Minister, uh, Jacqueline Symes. She has a bunch of other titles. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> it's hard to keep up. It is. They're always changing anyway, so. <laughs> Yeah, and it just, get, it just gets longer and longer. It does, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's basically calling for the action statement to to be scrapped and rewritten mm-hmm. to consider the terrible impact the bushfires have had on the species mm-hmm. and calling for, prote- for statewide protection of, of their habitat and where gliders are found. So if people want to get involved, that would be that'd be amazing. Definitely. I think our listeners will def- definitely be interested in that after speaking to you this morning. Also, to support Gecko's work, head to www.gecko.org.au slash donate. Thank you so much for coming on this morning, Chris. Thanks for having me. It was great chatting.
Okay, the time is 8.16. We're going to jump into our last interview for the day. Also, we've mentioned a few details uh, throughout the show today. We're going to wrap them up at the end of the show, so don't worry if you're hanging out for, like, some dates. We'll give you to them at the end. But um, right now, a bit of a different vibe. We've got um, Democracy in Colour to come on and tell us a bit more about their organisation and kind of what they do, what they have on the agenda for 2020. And to do that, we have Amelie with us. Good morning, Amelie. And thank you for having me. No problem. So starting off, Democracy in Colour, like, who are you guys? What what do you do? Um, so Democracy in Colour is a racial justice organization, and we advocate for the rights of marginalized communities. So we do this by endeavoring to tackle oppression and discrimination at an individual and the systemic or institutional level. Absolutely. And I was reading, I was reading through your website, uh, website whilst doing kind of homework for this week. <laughs> and I found a yeah. sentence, democracy in color was formed in a context, not just a, as a reaction to one moment. Um, the context obviously referencing the structural and systemic racism that we see in Australia and around the world. Um, I, I thought, could you, could you kind of extend on this? Um, why the organization exists? What's it's doing? Well, Democracy in Colour um, aims to tackle racism and predominantly that um, from a structural or systemic point of view because it's very difficult to dismantle a system we actively support simply by taking part in it every day. Um, so it's a system that we live in. In order to effectively dismantle this system, um, and it can be a scary phrase, but we only mean it to be um, promoting equity, we need to question the ways we behave that actively support this very um, white supremacist hyper-capitalist, heteronormative, hyper-masculine society we live in, mm-hmm. and the ways in which we facilitate the oppression of minorities, even without realising it. And just within kind of um, your operations in Australia, do you feel like the organisation is something that there's a growing need for? Uh, definitely. I think there has always been a need for uh, an organisation like us, but I think with the access to information so easily through social media, mm. um, people are starting to understand a little bit more about the injustices in the world. So while while I think there was always a need for democracy and colour, people probably didn't just know about it. Um, I think things like racism were seen a little bit more as an interpersonal um, issue, where you'd see someone shouting racial slurs, on the streets, and that would be seen as racism, um, someone being very covert about their discrimination, where I think we're starting to learn a little bit more about what systemic racism might look like. Okay, and, and democracy in colour is kind of dual-pronged, because it's not just, uh, from what I understand, it's not just campa- campaigning against like racism, but it's also pushing for structural change and pushing people of colour and perhaps more diverse backgrounds into positions of power and platform. Would that be correct? Yes. Um, so one of the projects that Democracy and Colour um, facilitates is placement and internships for strictly people of colour in the workforce. So one of the examples um, of systemic racism is that a lot of the time you walk into an office, it's predominantly um, white. And there are a lot of issues for people of colour walking through an environment where they are the minority and they carry this minority stress where they have to place so much emphasis and, and um, energy into sort of containing themselves mm-hmm. and sort of trying to blend into the environment and that sort of um, that would result in mental health issues and a whole bunch of other stuff. So one of the things that we do is to try and sort of spread out the resources and allow people of color to gain access into the workforce. 
Absolutely. And democracy in colour, I mean, there's this real recognition of the intersection between different struggles under structural racism, uh, political, cultural, corporate kind of influences and factors. Uh, one of the things I always think about this, uh, especially when talking to our audience and trying to get more people on our side with, like, with, with the messages that the organisation is trying to sell is how do you, how do you kind of, I guess promote this really holistic view because a lot of people will switch off because they go, oh, it's too much, you know, too many issues for me to think about. How do you kind of hook in the audience and go, okay, no, 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 we do need to be aware of all these different aspects that make up this combined issue? Um, I think for one of the specific ways that we um, at Democracy in Colour do that is by holding a lot of community discussions and um, workshops that sort of shine light upon what our privilege is, no matter who we are, whether it's white privilege in the case of racism, socioeconomic privilege, male privilege, and how this contributes to the oppression of minorities, not just racial minorities, but um, sexual minorities, mm. um, the disabled community, refugees, migrants. And we all have we all have biases. We all can be capable of discrimination. And what a lot of these community discussions um, aim to do is to highlight how we personally hold some sort of responsibility towards the oppression of these people. Okay, that, that sounds very constructive. I suppose with all those foundational questions, uh, my kind of next question was what's on the agenda for 2020? What are the, uh, the, the areas that you guys want to focus in? Um, I think what I can't talk too much about what the what specifically we'll be doing for 2020, mm -hmm. but I think the next thing that we're going to be working on, me personally, um, are workshops for our allies because I think people really want to help, mm -hmm. but they don't know how to, and it's a very and a lot of the time people on the other side don't really know what to tell them to be a more helpful ally. It's a very sticky sort of gray um, area. Mm. So with this workshop. We're going to try and help facilitate other companies to be more ethical too, so that in the outcome is that a better environment for marginalized people. Fantastic. And just listing that back into your the organization's core principles. I mean, I was reading them out quickly now, but if you could just uh, respond with how I suppose that that agenda that those issues feed into your core principles. Um, the Democracy and Color say that they're kind of system thinkers, that they're trying to understand social change in an ecosystem, so not just in isolation, and that you're fiercely independent. How will you go about this um, next step with those principles in mind? So regarding being independent, mm -hmm. we are an anti-capitalist um, organization, so we don't take any funding from the government, actually. A lot of the stuff that we do are based on volunteers and on our own. In terms of tackling things from a, a more corporate, sort of wider spread um, point of view, we um, construct a lot of organizational workshops as well, so that um, we're able to spread the message of democracy and color and equity um, throughout Australia, rather than just having one specific like platform that we sort of build on. It's a little bit more widespread that way. Fantastic. And that idea of system thinkers, slow, slow but consistent change, would that also be fair to say? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a very ambitious goal that we have, and mm -hmm. I think the, the, the project of us having the placement for people of colour as a shoe-in for the workforce is kind of like a slow, steady effort um, in tackling systemic racism. So... Long, small, small habits for long-term change. I, I do think I do think it's a fantastic focus point to especially make workshops workshops for allies because it reminds us that no matter where you are in a movement or in a society, there is a constant learning process. I suppose. I don't know. It's, it just seemed like a really cool acknowledgement. Um, my last question, of course, is how can people get involved? What can we kind of do to follow your news and all that sort of stuff? 
Um, so we have a Facebook group. Uh, just follow us on Democracy in Color on Facebook. We also are, are on Instagram where we're posting um, campaigns that we'll be holding throughout the year. And if you go jump on our website, um, you'll be able to send through an inquiry and we'll get back to you on that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Amelia, for joining us today. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye. And that was our last interview for today. So kind of wrapping up, uh, Jess, you had a few details that you wanted to touch on before we end the show? Yeah, I just thought we'd mention, um, if you were angered and um, quite upset over the salvage logging not being ruled out by the Daniel Andrews government yet, call him up. Um, number is 96515000. Give him a call, let them know how you're feeling about salvage logging and you know, that it should be stopped as it does disrupt recovery processes and animals that survived the fires. Um, let them know. Absolutely. And also, um, on the touch of fires, I've been looking at a lot of organisations and how to constructively give uh, during the fire appeal. And not everyone necessarily has financial resources. Yes. And also, there's been um, a lot of financial resources going to, you know, select yeah, areas. Say, yeah. So an alternative I thought I'd shout out is um, Give It, which is spelled G-I-V-I-T. Um, dot org dot au and what you can do there is actually go on find out direct items that people need mm-hmm. and if you have it lying around the house for example I have a lot of board games <laughs> uh, there's a family looking for board games in East Gisland so it's it's a different way of doing it perhaps yeah. you might have something on the shelf which you don't need but someone else might so that's an alternative mm-hmm. another date I wanted to shout out was uh, the festival of the photocopier so as I said incorrectly before <laughs> it's not next week it is February the 8th and 9th uh, and that runs from 12 uh, to 5pm mm-hmm. so it, it's good it lets you sleep in yeah and you, you have know? the option Saturday or Sunday or both Saturday Sunday <laughs> or both absolutely um, that's pretty much our show for today yes. well, thank you so much for joining us for 2020 thanks everyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, we'll be back on next week same time same place uh, we'll, we'll hear from you then see you then
Yalakut Willem Nagi, Australia's First Nations Festival, returns Saturday, February 1st with soulful live music and free family entertainment. Get your funk on to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, plus Coloured Stone, Kian, The Struggling Kings, Kihu, and loads more music from the finest First Nations artists in Australia. Eat and browse your way through market stalls or get hands-on at the many workshops and activities on offer. Yalakut Willem Nagi proudly celebrates Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures across one day where everyone is welcome. Head to ywnf.com.au for details. City of Port Phillip and Yalakut Willem Nagi, 3CR supporters. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.